All right, guys, if you have your Bible open and find the Old Testament book of Joshua. We are picking up steam in our study in this book. This is our third week in the book, but we're in chapter 2 today. The first week was an overview of the whole book and its main themes. Last week we began in earnest in chapter 1. If you missed either one of those and you want to catch up you know, to what you've missed, uh, both of those lessons are on our podcast, Lakeview College Ministry. You can find them there and listen to them. And like I said, we're going to look at chapter 2 today. This is a famous episode in, in the story of Joshua. Uh, and really an important story, not just in Joshua, but it's a story, it's a person in this chapter who has picked up more than once in the New Testament and held up for our instruction in the faith and held up for our instruction and in, in to teach us about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so for that reason, before we read the chapter together and dive into it, I want to remind you of a couple of ideas and, and um, a couple of quotes that I, that I mentioned in week one in the overview of the book. I think they're good for us to keep in mind, a perspective that's good to keep in mind as we study through this book. This chapter will be no different. The first was this, and you may remember this if you were here two weeks ago, that there, there is a, a real sense in which even though Joshua is, a, is an Old Testament historical narrative, it's one of several, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, Chronicles, even though it's a historical narrative, just telling a story of historical events, it is still, in a very real sense, a prophetic book. It's a prophetic book. Um, and the, the, the quote that I mentioned a couple weeks ago is from the Old Testament scholar Alec Matir, who's with the Lord now, but he, he uh, rightly and perceptively said that even, quote, history in the Old Testament is a declaration from God about God. So even when, um, yeah, you're, you're looking at this, this is not just a historical story. Um, it, is, it is there to preach to us in a way. And then in that vein, the second thing was uh, from Ralph Davis and his wonderful commentary on Joshua. He said very close to that first one. As you read and study Joshua, try to keep asking yourself the question, what is the writer preaching about when he tells me this story? He is not telling you the story only to inform you, although that is part of it. He has a message to proclaim, a God to press upon you. And so in that way, when we study Joshua, we study any other historical narrative, we ought to see these in the same light that we read almost read the Gospels. You read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, and they are telling, a, in many cases, a historical narrative of the life of Jesus, but they're not just stringing together haphazardly things that Jesus did and said just so you know that Jesus said and did them. But they are, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John are, are telling you these things and stringing to get them together in such a way that they also preach a message to you. So in John's case, for example, we just studied through John, so that you could read about the historical narrative of Jesus' life, but by the end of it, his stated purpose is so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. He didn't just have uh, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, to tell you about. 
but to show you that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the same way, we have the Old Testament narratives, not just telling us a story, but in so telling it, preaching a message to us that we need to pick up on. So that's how we're approaching this book. First and foremost, what is God telling us about himself here? Uh, What does it teach us about Christ? I mean, that's how Jesus himself taught us to read the Old Testament. Over and over again, Jesus would say, the Old Testament is about me. He he would teach, and and, and, uh, two men on the road to Emmaus taught them and showed them all the things concerning himself. In, 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 in the law of Moses, in the Psalms, and in the writings. So we, we want to, as we study through Joshua, I do want us to understand what happened historically here. You know, we need to. That's what it's there. It, it is there to teach us that. But we, we want to see um, all of what even the author of Joshua wants us to see here. And certainly uh, all that Christ wants us to see here. And, and we'll miss that if we get stuck in the mechanics of what happened, you know. So before we go any further, let's read the passage together, and then I'll try to lay out what I want us to see and take away from it. So Joshua chapter 2, beginning of verse 1, we'll read the chapter in its entirety. It's not very long. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim to, as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men, I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you devoted to destruction and as soon as we heard it our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you for the Lord your God he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. 
Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. She said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. And if anyone goes out of the, door, out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on you, on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went into the hills and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and they told him all that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Let's pray. Lord, this is your holy, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. It was a powerful chapter, Lord. And I pray that you would as we look at it, would you would give us eyes to see the truth here, help us to understand clearly the purpose of, uh, of this chapter in this story and in the whole narrative of Scripture. Give us minds to understand it. Give us hearts to embrace the gospel that is portrayed here. And Lord, uh, would you give us wills to obey what it calls us to do? Strengthen our faith in, in, by your word this morning. As Jesus prayed, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is true, so sanctify us in the truth of your word this morning, we ask. More in the likeness of Jesus. Give us all ears to hear and give me the help that I need, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, there are, there are four basic angles of this story that I, I want us to see. Three of these four angles are, are sort of just basic to the story itself. Uh, and, and, yeah, just what's going on here. And then the, the fourth one is going to try to see this story in the broader biblical perspective. But I think it's meant to be seen. So if you're taking notes, uh, here's where we're going. First, we'll say a word about the plan. The plan with our focus mainly on the spies in these early verses. Just at the outset, what's going on here? What's the setting? So the plan. Secondly, we won't say much about this, but we'll think about the problem that arises once the spies get to Jericho. Basically, I'm just going to highlight the tension that has mounted. It doesn't require a lot of elaboration. But that tension that we'll note there sets the stage thirdly for the protection that Rahab gives to the spies. We'll say uh, just a word about this also because, and I'll, I'll, I'll park here for just a minute because her actions here have become a source of curiosity for some people. I'll try to note that for a moment. But then finally, fourthly and finally, where I want our greatest focus to be is on the purpose that this story serves, not just in the book of Joshua, but also in terms of how it points us forward to Christ and how it points us forward to the gospel. We'll see this not just in, in 
pointers and clues within this story, but also a little bit about how the New Testament itself picks up on these things um, and makes reference to Rahab. So having laid out that path, let's dive in and think first about the plan, the setting of the story, what's going on, looking mainly at the two spies and their mission. So as I've said repeatedly in this study so far, there are four main themes that just are hammered over and over again in the book of Joshua. Those four main themes, which I mentioned the first week, are the leader, this transition from Moses to Joshua, the land, namely the promised land, the law that they are to keep when they are in the land, he be their God, they be his people, and the Lord himself who is giving them this land and Lord over them in the land. We'll see that confirmed over and over again as we make our way through the book, and we see it here that the land is front and center. I mean, I told you that this whole first section, chapters 1 to 5, is, is about their preparation to enter into the promised land. And, and, um, and the land is certainly front and center uh, in this chapter. We just read the chapter, and the land was specifically mentioned in verse 1, in verse 9, in verse 14, in verse 18, and in verse 24. So basically, from the first verse to the last verse, and everywhere in between in this chapter, the land that the Lord is giving them is the focus. But just as they had decades earlier, in the generation right before them, before in their preparation to enter the land, they want to spy out the land. You remember under Moses, they... They, the, the first time they tried, they sent spies to spy out the land, one from every tribe, so 12 spies go out, they view the land, as they come back, only two of them bring a positive report. Only two of them say, despite what we have seen, our Lord is strong and mighty, and he keeps his word. We can, we can do this, Joshua and Caleb being those two spies. All the rest of them said, no, 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 uh, we don't need to go. But only Joshua and Caleb were trusting the Lord. This time, only two are sent out, right, to spy out the land again. And spy out the land, spy out the people who are living in the land. And it says in verse 1 that Joshua, the son of Nun, sent them out. So he's the leader of the people now. He sends them out to scout out the land, and he adds, notice in verse 1, he says, go view the land, especially Jericho. Why especially Jericho? Because when we come to chapter 6, where chapters 1 to 5 are preparation, Chapter 6 begins, conquest begins, Jericho's city number 1. It's the first place we're going. So, so look at Jericho especially. And this would be, seem to be a good place at least to begin the conversation about the looming conquest in Joshua. Um, this has been a source of concern, questioning, of... of a lot of readers of the Bible, even a lot of Christians, the, the mere idea, not, not of the reality that at, at some places in the Bible, God himself unilaterally exercises his judgment on wayward people. I mean, he does that a lot of the times. The flood, right? He caused the rain and the earth to open up, floodgates to open Sodom and Gomorrah, he rained fire from heaven. Even in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, he caused them to drop dead. Right? There are times when God himself just unilaterally exercises his judgment on people. And, and, and so that, that bothers some people, but most people can get their hand, 
heads around that. Um, but, and so some can swallow that, but what's harder to swallow for some people is when God doesn't go that route. When instead, God uses his people to exercise judgment on another people. And the impending conquest under Joshua being a prime example of that. There is no way we could say this morning or any morning all that we could not comb through all the moral complexities of that. But there are a couple of things that I would want us to have in perspective as we move forward through this book. And perhaps we'll have more time to talk about these things as we come to each place. The first thing I would want to say is that even, even here, as they're preparing to go and when they go, even here where the Israelites under Joshua are carrying out this conquest, they are still explicitly doing so, according to the text of Scripture, under the express command uh, of God to carry out His justice. Okay? In other words, they're not just willy-nilly where you want to go next. Right? They're going specifically here, specifically here, specifically here, under express commands, do this, do this, do this. We see that expressly stated in chapter 6, verse 2, before Jericho. Chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, before Ai. Chapter 10, verse 8, before they go against a, a conglomeration of kings near Jerusalem. And so, what I'm saying is, even though it was at the hands of men that this act is carried out, it was still the will of God being carried out at the command of God himself. So the Lord, all I want to say there is, the Lord is within his sovereign right to carry out his will however he chooses. It's still God doing the action, even though it is through the hands of men. And if someone should say, this is where people get tripped up, yeah, but God is holy. I get it when he sends a flood. I get it when he rains down fire from heaven because he's holy. The Israelites were not, right? So uh, it just doesn't seem right that the Lord should use unrighteous Israelites to carry out his judgment against unrighteous anybody else. I would reply, sure, the Israelites here carrying out this conquest were not righteous. But I would also say that later in the New Testament, neither were the Assyrians and the Babylonians when the Lord raised them up very explicitly to carry out his righteous judgment against whom? His own people for their unrighteousness. The Assyrians against Israel. The Babylonians against Judah. Right? You know, and so that, that's, that's one thing that I would say. That the Lord, the Lord raises up men to execute His purposes all throughout the Old Testament. And not just, not just His people against other people. Sometimes against His own people. The second thing I would say that flows quite naturally out of the first is that these Canaanites, that they're about to... Um, that, they're about, that the Lord was about to lead them against in conquest... 
were extremely wicked people. Right? So it wasn't like they were just sitting there listen, listening to, you know, Mr. Rogers hoeing their gardens. Oh, my goodness, who are these people? It wasn't like that. Like, they were, the, these, these Canaanites were, were engaged in very many of the same practices that Israel would themselves later be judged for practicing. Um, terribly heinous pagan religious practices, uh, including, at times, child sacrifice. So, grotesquely wicked people. And I'm, I, mentioned, uh, I mentioned last Sunday that in chapter 1, that God first reminds them of his promise as he leads the people into the promised land. God had promised them this land, and he promised them not just through Moses, but even prior to that, through Abraham. And you get a hint of the wickedness of the present Canaanites in Joshua, you get a hint of their wickedness even back then in his promise to Abraham. Because in Genesis 15, God first makes the promise in Genesis 12. He repeats the promise in chapter 15, in chapter 17, chapter 21, and later to his sons. But in chapter 15 of Genesis, when he, for the second time, repeats this promise to Abraham, yes, uh, he, he made a promise that... that um, they, 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 he would bless them and they would uh, go take the land. But he even, in the midst of that particular promise, he foretold, the Lord foretold Abraham that the people would one day go into slavery and that he would later deliver them out of that slavery by a mighty hand and then they would go into that land that he promised them. But it adds this phrase in Genesis fifteen sixteen: for the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete. The iniquity of the Amorites, Canaanites, is not complete. The Amorites being one of the dominant peoples in Canaan. Even later in Old Testament history, in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 25 and 26, you've heard of King Ahab, the wickedness of King Ahab, who, whose wife was Jezebel. I mean, it's like the paragon couple of wickedness in the Old Testament, Right? Even their wickedness was compared to the wickedness of the Amorites earlier. 1 Kings 21, verses 25 and 26. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord, like Ahab, whom Jezebel incited. He acted very abominably. I mean, You've got to do something pretty rotten to be described with abominably. He, he acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. So when we see in Joshua 2 these two spies being sent out to spy out the land in preparation for the coming conquest, don't have any doubt that it is, it is, the, Lord's, it is the Lord's judgment, not the Israelites' judgment. It is the Lord's judgment coming against the Canaanites. It's his judgment that's being carried out, and it is just. You might well ask, well, then how do we know that the Lord still doesn't work this way? Well, we got to move on, but I'll say this. From a Christian perspective, he no longer works this way because Christ has now come. And now that Christ has come, this is 
now the day of his favor. This is the day of his favor. But the hour of his judgment is actually coming again. When this conquest in Joshua will be just a faint glimpse and a faint shadow of that coming day. And it's intended actually to be that. A wake-up call that a greater day of judgment is coming. So the judgment of God carried out in these conquests is not meant for us to question God's justice and God's righteousness. It's intended for us to question our own as we prepare ourselves through repentance and faith in Christ for that final judgment to come. So the plan unfolding in these opening verses in Joshua 2 is preparing for that coming conquest through the sending of the two spies to scout out the land and scout out the people, especially Jericho, because that would be the first city they face in chapter 6. The two spies enter into Jericho. At, at the end of verse 1, we're told that upon entering the city, they entered into the house of a prostitute named Rahab. For reasons that don't really need to be elaborated upon, they would, that house in particular would cause the least amount of speculation for where they go, right? If, that's, if, they, if they went there. The plan is to lodge there, get the information that they need, and leave. That's the plan. But as soon as we get past the first verse, a problem presents itself. So let me think about that for a second. The problem they encounter is the Jericho police. Right? Verse 2 says, And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And in verse 3, the king sent his men to Rahab's house and demanded them to be brought out. I don't want to spend a great deal of time here because it's quite self-explanatory. And really it's... Its whole and only purpose here is to set the stage for the next point, which is Rahab's protection of the men. But I do want to just note if there's anything to be gleaned from the problem that arises, the Jericho police coming and knocking on the door. If there's anything to be gleaned from that, you know, is that sometimes it's helpful to put yourself in the shoes of biblical characters in the story. And as I've said, it sometimes read it autobiographically. Just pick a character and put yourself there. And What if you were there? What if that was happening to you? And um, put yourself in the shoes of the spies in that little instance before there's a knock on the door. No doubt Joshua, you know, what, what was chapter 1? Chapter 1 is all about God reminding Joshua of, of his promise of his presence, of his providence over all of his purpose, over his people, his power. Be strong and courageous. Right? That's chapter 1. I have no doubt that Joshua, hey, two spies, Bill and Joe, I don't know what their names were. Before you go, let me just tell you what God just told me. Right? His promise. His presence is with you. His power, his, his purpose, his providence is over you. And no doubt these spies would have gone out quite confident in the Lord's will. But I have no doubt that, that they probably also, when, when they hear boom, 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 they might have felt quite trapped in that moment. I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure they would have had, they would have anticipated any... <laughs> less than miraculous kind of escape. And it could have caused them 
perhaps to doubt what they knew so clearly was the Lord's will for them. You know? Us knowing the rest of the story, we know that would have been a premature conclusion on their part. But isn't that sometimes still our problem? Like just in life, we can read Scripture and we know unquestionably what the Lord's will is because it's written down right here for us to read. And when we come back 10 years from now, it'll still say the same thing. You know, it's written down right here. But when we seek to obey it, sometimes things don't seem to go as we anticipated that they would. The enemies don't just fall down right in front of us. But before we, get to, before we begin to question God's word, we do just need to trust his providence. And, 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 it, and his providence will, without fail, always prove the trustworthiness of his word and justify our trust in him, right? Just as he's about to do for these spies. This is a fast-paced chapter. In verse 1, you see their plan unfolding. No later than verse 2, you see a problem present itself. By verse 4, you already see the Lord's providence at work, working in a highly unusual way to provide protection for the spies. Let's turn our attention to that for a moment. The protection that, re- that, that they're going to receive. This comprises the bulk of this chapter from verse 4 all the way to verse 21. And I want you to notice how carefully the author of Joshua narrates this so as to highlight one particular action of Rahab. The reader, for, for one would have, reader of this for the very first time, would be shocked to read in verse 4 that Rahab herself was the key to the spy's protection. She was a woman of ill repute. We're told, though, that when the police show up to her door, she had already hidden them. We don't know how much time had passed. We don't know how the king, somebody caught wind of who they were and why they were there. We're not told what. Somehow the king found out who the men were and why they were there. Um, By the same token, we don't know then how Rahab knew that they might get a visit from the police. Perhaps Rahab caught wind somehow that they would come, and so she already had hid them before the knock comes on the door. We're told in verse 6, that she had taken them up on the roof and uh, stalks of flax laid on top of them. But at the end of verse 4 and in verse 5, she told them quite a whopper. <laughs> she said, True, the men came to me, but I didn't know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly. You might overtake them. Smooth. Not a word of it true. People have debated the righteousness of this account to no end. Was it right for Rahab to lie like this? I don't know. A couple of things could be said. For one thing, some have noted that this is during a wartime setting. She's just taking the other side, right? And all manner of deception happens during a war when one army successfully deceives the other army and wins a battle. Nobody says, foul, right? 
that's like good thinking. For another thing, it would not, from Rahab's perspective, it would not be loving her neighbors more than herself to throw them to those who would kill them. Right? And in this way, Scripture consistently views Rahab's actions. It doesn't focus on the lie she told. It focuses on her benevolence. This was an act of benevolence, which is commended by God. But what I would really like to show you here, though, is how completely absent this question is from the biblical author of this story. I mean, it's, he just says it and moves on. This is what she said. Like, she deceives the police, and the next thing we read in verse 7 is not a referendum on what she just said, but simply that the police went out supposedly after the spies, and then once they went out, the gate of the city behind them closed. And this is... This is not meant in Joshua 2 to be like a moment. It's supposed to be an uh uh-oh moment because it's supposed to hit you like a bit of suspense because this whole bit about the gate shutting, the reader, if you're still in the shoes of the spies, you're supposed to be thinking, well, shoot. Now the gate of the city is closed. How are we supposed to get back out of the city? Sure, we got away this time, but now we're stuck in the city. They're going to come back, and we're still here. He creates that suspense in verse 7, and what I want to show you is that suspenseful question is not answered until verse 15, where we read that she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall. She lived in the wall. Nice. It didn't matter that the gate was closed. She lived in the wall. But why create suspense in verse 7 that you don't resolve until verse 15? To draw your closest attention to what happens in verses 8 through 14. That is the high mark of this chapter. That's the apex of this story. What happens in verses 8 to 14? She basically professes faith in the one true God. Ralph Davis, again, in in his fantastic commentary on Joshua, identifies three things that she acknowledges faith in. First, he says in verses 8 through 10, she expresses faith in the might of, of the Lord, the might. She says in verse 9 that the the fear of the Lord has fallen on all of them. Verse 10, she recounts all the mighty works of the Lord. She knows what he's able to do. The might of the Lord. Second, Davis says she confesses faith in the majesty of the Lord. In verse 11, look there. She says in verse 11, not just that their hearts melted, but she acknowledges for the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. That's important because that is precisely what the Israelites were supposed to know and believe and confess. After they saw the mighty works of the Lord in the Exodus, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 35 and 39, the Israelites were told, 
to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides Him. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. This is what Rahab came to believe. Exactly what the Israelites were to believe. But third, Davis says she acknowledges her faith not only in the might and the majesty, but in the mercy of the Lord. That's verses 12 and 13. She doesn't just believe that he's strong and he's sovereign. She believes that the Lord will show her mercy as she shows repentance and faith in him and shows kindness to his people. This, to this point in particular, Davis says, and listen carefully to what he says here, genuine faith never rests content with being convinced of the reality of God but presses on to take refuge in God. That's what Rahab did. She made a covenant with the spies for their protection, for her, for her, for her family. When the conquest comes in return, you know, right, for helping them escape alive. She lets them go after they arrange what she is supposed to do upon their return to assure her safety and her salvation. And as we come to that, I believe we come full circle to the purpose of this chapter. Not only in the book of Joshua, but in Scripture as a whole. Let's think about that before we wrap it up. The purpose. To begin this last point, you may not have ever thought of this, but I, I just want to point out that in a very real sense, this chapter, Joshua 2, could be completely removed from the book of Joshua and really, it wouldn't interrupt the story at all. <laughs> I mean, it just wouldn't. The unfolding of events would essentially be the same. In chapter 1, remember my promise? Rem you know, and, and, and remember, remember my presence with you as you go? Remember my providence before you? I will give you this land. I will give you rest. If you took chapter 2 right out, then chapter 3... It is basically, all right now, they're up to the edge of the Jordan and about to go in with his promise and presence and providence. Chapter 2, wouldn't, if you just took it out, it wouldn't change anything. So why even include this story of Rahab in chapter 2? Why is this even here? Because the book of Joshua was always meant to tell a story much larger than the mere historical event of crossing a river and taking possession of a piece of land. All of that is divinely meant to point us to something more e important, more eternal, and this chapter is no different. In fact, one could almost make the case that pointing the reader to that larger story and that larger purpose of God is the only point of chapter 2. Seeing how truly unnecessary it is to the actual accomplishment of the conquest. So that being said, what is the larger story? And what does the story of Rahab have to do with it? Let's say a word about that as we wind this thing down. Well, just take a step back and, 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 and look at what you have here. This whole story is told just so that you know that a pagan Gentile a Canaanite prostitute 
professed faith in the Lord and expressed that faith in the latter part of the story by tying a scarlet cord in her window to spare her from the judgment of God being a type of the blood of Christ, just as the Israelites before them had put the blood of the Passover lamb on their door so that the death angel would pass right on by, being a type of the blood of Christ. Hebrews 11.31, James chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, both of those New Testament passages both testify that these works, not just hiding the spies, and, but also making a covenant with the, the Israelites, professing her faith, putting the scarlet cord in her window, all these are evidence of her faith in the promise of a Savior God would provide even for her. That's what the New Testament says. And in that way, Rahab in this story is a type of the church. She's a type of the church. The second century church father Origen said of Rahab here, Therefore, if any wants to be saved, let him come into the house of this one who was once a prostitute. Let him come to this house in which the blood of Christ is the sign of redemption. And that promise of a coming Savior for even her was even closer than she even knew. Because you turn a few pages and Joshua 6, 25 tells us that she lived in Israel for the rest of her life. We know from elsewhere in Scripture that she married a man named Salmon. She had a, they had a son named Boaz who married a girl named Ruth. Who, they had a son named Obed. They had a son named Jesse who had a son named David who many generations later would come Jesus Christ. And you open up, you open up to the New Testament and you're not five verses into the first page and you see the name of Rahab the Canaanite prostitute <laughs> in the genealogical line leading to Christ. And the poetry, and I'll end with this because we've got to wrap it up, but the poetry could not be any more beautiful. She is helping them in, in Joshua chapter 2. She's helping the people of Israel fulfill the promise of Abraham, to, to Abraham, right? God was giving them a land. But that wasn't all that the promise to Abraham said. Sure, he's given them a land. But also it included this, that, that through the offspring of Abraham, one would come in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jew and Gentile. Israelite and Canaanite. And not just inherit this land, but the eternal land to come. And that's how Joshua 2 points us to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this beautiful word. And, and I pray that as we read this story, and we want to know who do we identify with in this story. We don't identify with Joshua. Or we don't identify with the spies. We're all Rahab.
I mean, later in the Old Testament, you would raise up a prophet named Hosea and tell him to go marry a prostitute, symbolizing the waywardness of your people. And Jesus would later sit at a well with a woman who had already had many husbands, and the one she lived with now is not her husband. Jesus would not rebuke the the wayward woman who washed his feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. Over and over again, we are presented as wayward and adulterous people. We are Rahab. But what a beautiful promise that seen in Rahab here that when we put our faith not just in your might and not just in your majesty but in your mercy and that, that mercy is found in the blood of Jesus Christ as that scarlet cord represented we can find forgiveness in his name and we give you praise for this in Jesus name Amen